Mike Walsh, and you're listening to Between Worlds, the show that takes you over the horizon and beyond borders to bring you the global thinkers, innovators, and troublemakers whose ideas challenge the world as we know it. My guest today is Professor Ian Golden, who's the Professor of Globalization and Development at the Oxford Martin School, and of course a prolific uh, writer. I have in front of me his latest book, The Age of Discovery, which I believe, Ian, is your 20th book. Is that correct? It is um, my 20th book. (laughs) (laughs) I'm not that young anymore, so that's sort of part of the reason why I've been able to accumulate so many books. (laughs) If you can can be aged by your backlist uh, uh, rather than your appearance, I think that's the finest way to uh, to Um, be archived. (laughs) Yeah, uh, each book feels exciting, but this one uh, certainly does. Uh, absolutely, and you know, it, was, it was a great pleasure to meet you today, and, and to he- obviously hear you talk. We're, we're in Dubai, which many people say is the city of the future, and, and a, a city that was created on an idea as much as anything else in the middle of the desert. And, and I think it's on the subject of ideas where I was most interested in, in reading your, your most your most uh, recent book because, you know, you're really focusing on the fact that we may be living now in a new Renaissance. So, what is your reading of the Renaissance then? You know, in, in, in the sense of the original sense. The Renaissance was a quite extraordinary time. It brought Europe from being one of the most backward places on earth to being the most advanced society within a hundred year period of time. Uh, It led to revolutions in virtually all dimensions of uh, people's lives that we still in many cases celebrate today uh, and which have an impact today. We celebrate the artistic breakthroughs of the Michelangelo's and da Vinci's and others, but also we understand that the earth goes around the sun, uh, <laughs> which they never understood uh, before the Renaissance. They had a earth-centric world uh, before then. Uh, we understand the world is round, uh, that the Americas and Asia exist, which the Europeans didn't know uh, before um the Renaissance, and suddenly uh, in the age of discovery, there there was discovery about everything. And uh, it came about, I think, through two uh, big technological changes. The one was the Gutenberg Press and the flow of ideas um, in new ways. Uh, And the second is a whole series of subsequent scientific inventions, uh, which allowed people to travel far and wide. Uh, and discover that the, you know the, what the world's about, and within a hundred years they had a map of the world. Right. Um, and uh, so these these physical maps, these journeys of discovery, were very much linked to these, I guess, almost interior maps of knowledge that they were also being developed. Yes, and the swapping of ideas, the ability to write, to print, to exchange, mm-hmm. uh, the ability to leapfrog uh, in so doing, and also an insatiable appetite for learning and for literacy that developed because there was stuff to read. Uh, um, Whether it was an advertisement or a political pamphlet or a learned book, um, none of that was available to Europeans uh, before the press. How illiterate were Europeans before the press? About 99% of Europeans were illiterate. Uh, because there was nothing to read except for monks in Latin in handwritten manuscripts uh, in their monasteries. 
So why learn to read if there's nothing to read? Uh, how are you going to learn to read if there's nothing to read? It's interesting. So, you know, it's, it's, so it's, very like, it's very much like the internet. Right. Well, so, I was going to say that. Um, it's almost like coding. Like maybe in 100 years' time, they'll say it's amazing. Only 10% of the population could code. Yeah, if that. Um, <laughs> but it's, it's also, you know, you see the similar leap in literacy uh, and availability of materials now in this period of the last 25 years hmm. since the internet's developed. Many other things have changed as well. The walls have come down between societies for political and ideological reasons and economic reasons as well. But these technological platforms have created a global knowledge exchange. And, and that's the most, and, they've, and, a, and a hunger to learn. So if you look at numbers of people that own education today, uh, you know, we, we well over double the numbers from only 35 years ago. So it's really major, major break, breakthroughs in productivity. Right. And, and is, that, is that the key innovation of the Renaissance in the sense it was the democratization of, of knowledge uh, that you're now seeing parallel today? Because in you know, classical times, Greece and Rome, there were also incredible discoveries, but they were very much contained within the elites. Yeah, I think it was. Um, I think it, it, it was creating these platforms for exchange. Uh, of course, it pushed many ideas, religious ideas of, and extremist ideas of different types, challenges to authority. Um, and it also created poetry and nationalism uh, and people's identity, because um, when they could only read in Latin and there was nothing that bound them as a language uh, or symbols of language, when they were oral traditions rather than written traditions, uh, there was much less nationalism. So nationalism is a very good, but also a very dangerous thing. Yes. Um, poetry is generally a very good thing. Um, so there was a flourishing in multiple dimensions because people could exchange. They could write and record and exchange, just like you're doing with your podcast. And that was new. Uh, so people suddenly wanted to write poetry. Uh, and they could write it in their own language. Uh, and that really changed the way people felt. So in many ways, the conditions for the mass spread of ideas is once again present in the 21st century because of these new technologies. Do you see similar conditions now also being created for genius? Yes. There's, there's um, I think, a flowering of genius in the world, of creativity. I believe in two things uh, related to this. One is in the random distribution of exceptional talent. Right. Uh, and we move from a world where we only had about half a billion people that were part of this global talent pool in the 1970s and 80s to a world of over 5 billion people rising to 7.3 billion people who are literate, uh, connected. And have and, a smartphone. And, and have a smartphone. And whether they're in the slums of um, Mumbai or Soweto or the streets of a big city, uh, they can contribute. So we should expect a lot more breakthrough individuals like Shakespeare's, Einstein's, Mozart's, and others coming, but they'll come from a different place. I mean, the, the, the probability theory still says they won't come from Europe or, or USA, they will come from Asia because or of Africa. Demographics. Because of demographics. Right. Um, but I, I believe in, in a second dimension to creativity and genius, which is actually when you look at what breakthrough innovations about and breakthrough ideas, it tends to be people bouncing off each other, whether it's in a laboratory, whether it's um, musicians in a band, or whether it's uh, people who are inspired by artists and others who are inspired by what they see and what they hear. 
uh, people actually don't create alone. Uh, they mm. create, uh, co-create in many ways. And, they, and the more diverse their experience, uh, the more rapidly they create. And also the more diverse the teams, the more diverse the abilities, the this, this disciplines, the cultures, the genders, and all of that. We know from management theory uh, as well and psychological literature that diverse teams are much more creative than homogenous teams. Now, what you're getting is a global diversity. Right. So people are bouncing off each other in all dimensions uh, on 24-hour cycles, on YouTube, on the labs that are curing cancer, sharing data. Um, there are also new uh, clusters as well. I mean, you, new, you, you wrote new, about new clusters, yeah. Florence and Antwerp as being sort of these yeah, creative exactly. hubs in the exactly. Renaissance. The, the new cluster, Dubai is a huge cluster, obviously, you know, right. 98% foreign. Um, but uh, London's a third foreign, Toronto's 50% uh, foreign. Sydney is very di- multi-dimensional. So these are massive, but it's not, but within the new world, you don't have to be there. Uh, you can be virtually there. And so you find, you know, if, if people that want to really compete with hip hop dancing, whether they're in Shanghai or Harlem, they can bounce off each other and, and really advance quicker as a result. And the same is true in every dimension of creativity. Um, so, yes, there's both individual flourishing of genius uh, and there's this creative genius that's flourishing because of because of the coming together of perspectives now you could ask which many people do is um where the flying cars <laughs> as peter thiel said you know if if, if, if we're in this creative this, genius what what we apparently he's voting for trump so i don't care oh is he oh my okay he might be asked. so you know the, but so i've been thinking a lot about this is where Given, I believe there's this flourishing of genius. Where the, where's the payoff? Where's the where's the evidence? Yeah, yeah, why aren't we seeing it in productivity? Why aren't we seeing it in other areas? Um, and and that's an interesting question. Uh, and I think as, the reason is not uh, that, as some people would say, excess of regulation or um, sort of taking away of the appetite to innovate for various reasons. But rather what is really happening is that firstly, there's huge innovation that it depends how we define it. What we have, for example, with smartphones is an innovation. You know, five billion people being able to communicate is an innovation. Um, and what's happening in the labs. And as director of the Oxford Martin School at the University of Oxford, I have over 300 people, many of who are in labs doing nanotechnology or quantum technology or photovoltaics or other areas. And when you see what's happening in the labs, you, you know, what's happening is this stuff is in the pipeline. It's going to overwhelm us in the coming years. Right. Uh, this is actually a charge that some people levy uh, in that we may have almost every song possible you can imagine on Spotify, you can watch Netflix and, until you, you become catatonic. But academic research is actually not that freely available, despite the inter- internet. Uh, uh, do, do you think that we are, in a sense, not realizing the full potential of what could be our new renaissance because of that? Um, this is a, <laughs> a, big, a big debate. <laughs> uh, there's, there's, there's a whole issue around intellectual property on the one hand. Hmm. And um, when and how you release your intellectual property from a lab or from a musician's practice room uh, into the world and in order to be able to reap the benefits of it. Because once it's out there, you lose it. Yes. Uh, the world gains, uh, but you as a creator lose it. So um, whether everything should be open source, 
uh, as many people would would believe, and my you know my friend Mark Shuttleworth's done with Linux and many many other things. Um, that's incredibly uh, important, and many things are open source. Uh, and certainly, if you go to YouTube, you see a lot of people sharing information publicly. No problem, uh, but. When it comes to trying to develop a new antibiotic or trying to develop a new cure for cancer or a new form of photovoltaic, uh, there's a need to move from building this thing on silicon on your computer conceptually mm. to actually manufacturing it. And before you can manufacture it and test it and put it in a window frame and make sure it can withstand the heat and cold and wet, you want it to be yours. Hmm. Uh, you don't want some huge manufacturer to take these ideas that you've broken through to develop and do it. Now, this can be taken to extremes because what some of the pharmaceutical companies and others do is they take basically vacuum clean all these ideas that are in the labs and lock them in safes. And that's very bad for society. Yes. Uh, because they don't want competitors or they want to do when they're ready, etc. The various reasons they do it like that. So there needs to be a balance, and that's why the intellectual property regimes are such an important part of thinking about this. So yes, some some control in academia is necessary. Too much is is bad, but there's also this is changing dramatically. For example, there's a lot of journals now that put out intermediate materials, but they should also carry big health warnings with them, because <laughs> you know the problem is that um, that you really want to be sure when you say something, that it's right, yes. um, and particularly in the sciences. Uh, there have been some spectacular embarrassments of people putting something out there and discovering that actually it only worked in that one case, but actually it's not a general <laughs> <laughs> applicable rule. Um, so testing it, having peers testing it, etc., before you publicize it must probably save some embarrassment too. One of the areas that you're obviously very focused on is, is interdependency and the fact that now, uh, you know, when we, we look at supply chains or the global structure of economies, we are more, I think your words are entangled. Yeah. Uh, what are the sort of the, the benefits and also the, the dangers of, of that interdependence? The reason I, I use the term that we're more tangled uh, now is because when people say we're more connected, that's obviously true. Hmm. But connected implies an, an optionality. It implies that we can choose. You know, I don't want to connect, I'll disconnect. Yes, or I can block you. Uh, okay, I'll block you. That, that's not how it is. Right. We're tangled. We have no choice. <clears throat> we are all totally interdependent. Uh, what happens in one place affects others. What, ha- what I do will affect you. In politics uh, and economics. In politics and, and economics, in climate change, right. in when I decide to have my tuna or not, in my sushi, because we're in this world where everything is integrated. So my choice is the wealthier I get and the more connected I get, the more the spillovers of my choices affect yours. If I decide to take antibiotics, it'll affect other people's antibiotic resistance. Right. If I decide to have sushi, it's going to affect the survival of tuna, which is going to affect other users of it, and so on and so forth. So in, that's the nature of this hyper-integrated world uh, that we are entangled. And the more that people participate, uh, because of their consumption behavior, because of all the things they do, uh, the more that they create this incredibly complex web. 
the challenge of managing this thing is is on numerous levels. The one problem is that the way we tend to manage societies is at the national governance level, hmm. which the old Westphalian model is totally unfit for 21st century purpose, but we don't have another one. Yes. Uh, the only other one we have is the sort of the UN one, which is equally uh, unfit for 21st century purpose. But the whole areas, including cybersphere, uh, which have no governance at all, really, to speak of. Or well, even big corporations. Uh, big corporations. Nation states versus yeah, Google. Yeah, and the whole, um, yeah, and the whole offshoring of tax and everything mm. else. Capital is is global, and, and nation states are, are local in that in that sense in their capacities. Um, and so, what we need to be able to manage is these interdependencies. You no, know, not not everyone matters in the same way. What sub-Saharan Africa does, for example, on um, carbon emissions is not the same as what the US does or, or what China does. You know, New York produces more carbon emissions than the whole of sub-Saharan Africa. New York consumes more antibiotics than the whole of sub-Saharan Africa. So big players are, have a particular role uh, in how one manages these things. But this is the, the big challenge for all of us. How do we take all the fruits of our interdependency, which lead us to all the progress and all the creativity and all the good things that will come in our lives? Yeah. Um, without finding that we're ensnared uh, and brought down by the tangles uh, that this all involves. But opting out is not an option. Yes. Um, for, a, for an individual, you can go and opt out and live in the wilderness. That's your choice. But for a society or for lots and lots of people, opting out is not without dramatic reversals in fortunes. And that's why um, I, I, I think the, the extremism we're seeing in politics is very misguided. The yes. sort of you know whether whether it's on the right or the left, this belief that you can somehow withdraw your society by protectionism, nationalism, stop the migrants, etc. Or even bringing jobs home. I mean, when you look at the yeah. way something an iPhone is manufactured, yeah, uh, it's I mean, twenty six it countries. Uh, <laughs> the the different components of it, and that's not talking about the raw materials that are mm. inside those components. Um, so. Um, the question for me isn't whether we somehow close ourselves off and try and cut the tangles. Uh, I don't think that's an option. The The question is, can we manage this effectively, this complex web, and ensure that it's stable, that right. it, that, that it, it doesn't is towards parts of it, and that's what's happening with rising inequality, uh, that it doesn't lead to cascading shocks and failures as or, we've or seen pandemics in, or viruses or pandemics is, a, is you know is the scariest one yeah. financial crisis is is the is the is the obvious one that we've seen but the exact same characteristics that happened in a financial crisis will can happen in pandemics in cyber it's basically a combination of new technologies bad management local management big data not being used effectively um, and uh, a, a real disconnect between short-term and long-term and local and, and global. I, I think it would be unfair, like having led, led you down this path a little bit, if, if I didn't correctly acknowledge that you are overall optimistic. Yes. <laughs> yes, it is. It, it, you know, I, I, I put the, the, um, the subtitle which, of this book, which I wrote with a, a really brilliant doctoral student, Chris Gutana, um, <laughs> in as navigating the risks and rewards of our new renaissance. Um, because I do feel that the renaissance is a, we think of it at least, as a very positive thing. 
it did it did really move Europe from <laughs> the Middle Evil Ages into the, into the modernity. But we still forget the bit where they started the bonfires. The bonfires <laughs> and 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 that they and that the voyage of discovery French, killed killed most Native <laughs> Americans, etc. Yes, and, and nasty Franciscan Franciscan monks. Yeah, and the, and then the Spanish Inquisition, but. Um, I am optimistic because I think, unlike in the Renaissance, where it was actually very much a European affair dominating the world, uh, and also knowledge wasn't that widely disseminated, although it was much larger numbers of people, we have this global matrix of communication now and knowledge. Hmm. And, um, you know, symbolized in your podcast, people are sharing information. Uh, now, if we can move knowledge to action, if we can accelerate people's perceptions of what's happening and uh, the, all of these risks are totally manageable. There's nothing in even climate change or pandemics uh, that's not manageable. Mm. It's just the With will, the will to action. act. Yeah. It's the will to act. It's, mm. it's, how do you translate what we know from science and from um, evidence into political action? And that's, again, why I'm worried about what's happening in the politics now. Because in a, in a sort of strange way, what we're seeing in the politics in Europe, in the US, most recently in the Philippines, is, is sort of almost back to 1920s politics or 1930s politics. This isn't 21st century politics. Yes. This isn't sort of anything that connects to the world of, of the 21st century and the challenges we face. And yet people's visceral reaction is to romantically go back to some sort of primitive uh, politicians. And, and that, that's the worry, because that's going to make the problem much worse. But these people aren't into managing globally. I mean, when you, they compete about how little they say about climate change or pandemics. Or do, do you any see global them problems. as 21st century uh, Savonarolas? They are. I think they are in, 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 in many respects. And, and interestingly enough, when you look at uh, Luther, you know, was not sovereign, he wasn't in, radically in the same way. But what these people were saying was authorities corrupt. Yes. The, the, and then it was the Roman Catholic Church. You could buy your way to indulgences, heaven. Indulgences. Yeah. Indulgences. Hmm. Um, that, that the system, it wasn't that they were re totally rejecting modernity. They were using modernity, the, the printing press, just like ISIS is using the social media to hmm. recruit uh, foreign fighters. They were using the technologies with a very different vision of an Apura, in their view, vision of the future, which was more moral, less corrupt. Where and it came about because authority was discredited. But there was there was, uh, there was also an argument there, which we're, we're seeing paralleled now, is that the returns of modernity weren't sufficient. Yeah, and they weren't widely they weren't shared. Yes, uh, they were sufficient for some people who were doing fabulously well and were having all these spices from all over the world. Yeah, and, and living the new, Uber and, uh, the new food and everything else and silk. And others were still in their tatters on the streets, right. and that really, you know, was in people's face. Uh, the Gulf, uh, and that's where the Medici's and philanthropists of the time, and obviously they have their parallels today, uh, also got it wrong. Yeah, they couldn't just fix it by patronizing a few people. Patronage was extremely important, and many of the things the Renaissance came out of patronage, the basically philanthropy from the wealthy to the artists and others, uh, but. It was very narrow in its concentration, and the majority of people felt this is the system, this modernity, this rapid change is not bringing about rapid progress. And when you look at the data on incomes, health, and so on, they didn't advance. Mm -hmm. And there were also some really bad things that advanced 
uh, particularly once you've gone into the religious wars. Yeah. Uh, but also pandemics moved. As people moved more, pandemics moved more as well. Uh, so um, it, it was a scary time for people, and today's a scary time for people. They see the technologies, they see the pace of change accelerating, but they don't think that they are secure in it. They might lose their jobs to a robot. They might be killed by a pandemic. Their bank account might be opened by a cyber attack. Their job might be taken by someone on the other side of the world. That's not like a really optimistic picture. And then you get extremists saying, I have a different vision of modernity. Yes. Uh, and that becomes very, very tantalizing. In that context, what's your read on the attempts by Facebook and Google to essentially bring their version of the internet uh, or connectivity to the rest of the world? I mean, does, does this fit within your narrative of you know greater universal connectivity, or is it something else? I I think that um, you know Google's been able to enjoy a monopoly because it's been so much at the frontier in many, not all over the world, but certainly in in Europe and parts of Europe and, and in the US. Um, it has been such a first had such a first mover advantage. It's being challenged in many places. Um, I think that, uh, and I've you know I have had long <laughs> discussions with various people involved in this. Um, I think they're benign in intent. I mean, I I, I believe them when they say we don't want to do bad. Right. But 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 the, but the road to hell is paved with good intentions. But the, but, that's, <laughs> but 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 on these platforms. Things happen, um, and their accumulated power uh, needs to be checked. Hmm. Uh, and um, so, yeah. And then there are big debates which are being played through now, uh, which will also shape some of this. One of them is on privacy. Hmm. Whose information is it on yeah. there? We can trust Google to, um, I don't believe they mine our information for, and they know everything about us for personal or corporate gain. I don't, they don't. I'm pretty sure about that. But who has access to their database? Yes, uh, that might. Uh, and, and increasingly, and, governments are requesting and governments it. are requesting it, and that's why these debates and uh, the the broad debate on surveillance is very important. Uh, and this relates back to the entangled world and the threats, <laughs> um, you know, which is going to become a very hot issue. If there are people out there with a growing power, and the big change of, the, of this time compared to the, um, which again is a Renaissance echo, is Luther, Savonola, these guys could lead to mass movements, but now this is turbocharged. So if individuals have a power which only nation states had, and they certainly have a power now in the media uh, to propagate ideas, uh, and some of them are highly destructive, um, where, what do we think? about surveillance. So this is going to be a big, big debate going forward. And who do we trust now? It's fine if you know, if you trust the people doing surveillance not to use the information against you. But where you're in a society where you don't trust those in authority to abuse it, this becomes a very, very difficult issue. So as we move forward with these databases uh, that have an increasing amount of information, which is all GPS tracked to us, of course, uh, we want to really know what's going on. I guess just to end, uh, the, the, the final image I really got from your book was that one of the reimagining of the Vitruvian man, the power yeah. of the individual and of individual flourished genius. Uh, well, what do you mean by that? And, and, and I guess what hope do we have for the future? Um, we have immense hope because we are, you know, an incredible species with incredible creative power, uh, adaptable power. 
and problem-solving power. And uh, and there's a lot of us <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> who are now coming together. Yeah. Uh, and that creates really an extraordinary force. Uh, but I'm not a sort of what I consider to be rather naive Silicon Valley techno-optimist. I don't believe that the technologies in themselves inevitably solve problems. You're not waiting for the singularity upload. I'm not waiting for the singularity upload. I'm not waiting for <laughs> you know, the technologies that are going to give us free energy mm. and that's going to stop climate change or uh, overcome water shortages or overcome poverty or solve pandemics. Of course, these technologies will be platforms that help us, but the most powerful technologies are knowledge exchange, uh, which relies on this platform for us to really share ideas, share knowledge, and mobilize. Mobilize new ideas which will solve problems, but most importantly, mobilize social consciousness. Uh, so that's my hope. Ian, it was great talking to you. Thank you for being on the show. Great. Good speaking with you. You've been listening to Between Worlds. For more episodes and information on how to subscribe to our podcast, please visit www.mike-walsh.com slash between worlds.